Our Bible reading tonight comes from the first letter of John, reading from chapter 1, verse 1 through to chapter 2, verse 2. 1 John, I think it'll be on the screen if you wish to follow it there, or you may just listen. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie And do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now I invite Jeff to come and speak. Let me pray for Jeff as he comes. Our gracious Father, we thank you for your word to us. We pray that you'll bless Jeff as he speaks. May we hear you speaking to us through these words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you very much, Peter. And thank you for being here tonight. I pray the Lord will uh, indeed answer Peter's prayers. Um, This passage, I think, is one of the most critical passages in the New Testament. Uh, John is uh, an old man when he writes this. We're in the last couple of decades of the uh, first century of the church. The apostles are dying off and uh, the only way to transmit the core of the gospel is by letter form like this and uh, travel is a very difficult thing in the ancient world. There's no, there's few highways and, and a man in his age can't travel so he writes these things so that his joy might be complete. So the churches that he has founded and the churches that he's responsible for might really experience the fullness of Christian experience and uh, be able to 
take hold of that which is their birthright. And that's really what he's writing about here. Isn't it interesting, he begins by talking in the first uh, four verses about the tangible nature of Jesus Christ. He's not writing an ideology. He's not writing a theory. He's not trying to convince them of his version of mythology. He's writing about a person he knew. And he calls this person eternal life, the life. In terms like this, that in Jesus he is, he is seeing that this one really is the, the beginning and the end of everything that we need for eternal life. This one who is the son of the father, the Lord Jesus. And so then he moves to his fundamental premise of the whole book. Now this fellow has seen a lot of water pass under the bridge. In fact, he's seen a few bridges go by as well. And he, he knows just how, how vulnerable the church is to false ideas. And the new strategy for making a church is, is pretty ugly. And some things are happening and things are being said about himself and others. And he's, he's hand workers that are uh, really disturbing. And he deals with those things in this precious little book. Uh, that, and I, what I, as I read it, I think he could be writing about today's church. The more I read about it, the more I think uh, these things, though we are in a very different age, people have a continuity. People are very similar at the core. And so he begins by founding his message on a one theological truth. And this truth is the foundation pillar for the rest of the book. And that, that pillar is in verse 5 where he says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. So this comes straight from the Son of God, straight from the throne of heaven. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That's a fascinating phrase, that God is light. The attribute that he thinks of when he thinks of a metaphor to capture the very essence of our God is light. Now, as you know, we've looked at the gospel earlier last year and uh, we, we see that uh, the light there tends to refer to the light of illumination or God revealing himself. Uh, and that is still possible here. But I think what John is really focusing upon is light as a metaphor for holiness, for purity, for an infinite intensity of sheer goodness. And that's what is, God, what is the very nature of our God. Now that raises an immediate predicament for us because you and I are not of light and we are habitually dark, complex, uh, liars, to put it one way. Uh, we portray ourselves in ways that are less than honest. And this God who is light has to live with us. And yet John has made the promise earlier that this one we can have fellowship with this one. How can that be, that we can have fellowship with him? Now, I know that the trouble is, is that when we mix with people who have great virtue, uh, you feel exposed. You feel that they can see through you sometimes. How much more, if you're going to rub shoulders with the one from the throne of heaven, will you feel that common human experience of guilt? You, you will be aware of things that are just subpar. That he who is the image of God and expected us to be image mark two can only be disappointed when he sees our performance as individuals and as the race. And yet he still makes fellowship 
possible. Now, I think that we ourselves in this room and all the saints that have gone gone before, right back to Adam himself, have some pretty kooky ways of dealing with guilt. Now, I know this is meant to be a series on prayer. And I know that the passage Peter has just read doesn't mention prayer. It mentions confession at one point. That's about as close as we get to it. And it doesn't mention the Holy Spirit, in fact. There's good reason why he leaves the Spirit behind in this passage. The one who writes more about the Spirit than any of the Gospel writers. He writes about this because he knows that this is a fleshly problem, this problem with guilt, and it goes back to Adam, that we would prefer to deal with guilt through our own inventive ways. We tell ourselves sentences to soothe that guilt so that we can feel right with God. We try and deal with our guilt feelings. But here's where prayer comes in. You see, if we feel guilty, then just like Adam in the garden, when the Spirit of God draws near, we will run, we will distance ourselves, and finally when we're cornered, we'll come out and cover ourselves with a cover story. We will not have confidence before God. And John has seen it all in his long life as an apostle, And he has come up here with three stunts, three false trials, three defensive routines that people often use. Maybe you can identify with them. Maybe you use one of them more than another. I think I could probably say I've used a couple of these. But uh, let's look at these false trials. And the first one is in verses 6 and 7. And you will have noticed the pattern when Peter read this passage for us that is a repeated threefold pattern, and it's like this. It's that if we say A, then effectively what we're doing is B, when we could have said C, and the impact would have been D. It's that sort of pattern, and and I, I encourage you to watch that pattern on the way through. It's quite deliberate, obviously, that he's done this. So here's the first thing people say, the first defensive routine, the first false trial. This person in verse 6 and 7, this strategy for dealing with guilt, if you like, it says, if we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. This person's defensive routine is to say, sin doesn't matter. It's the defensive routine that Paul said, uh, John here says, I kept on calling him Paul this morning too, it's a Weird. But anyway, it's a defensive routine of deception. This person is lying. Now, when a person is deceiving and lying, they know they are. It's quite conscious. And I've seen that in my own ministry experience. I can think of when I began in university work years ago. And uh, we used to have an outreach at one of the universities every union night and other nights in one of the CAFs. We had one guy who was a member of our team and he had come along and in our prayer and worship times he was one of the loudest and most vocal. He went along to a, a church where he had been convinced that he had uh, more spiritual gifts than um, the whole of apostles altogether and he, he, you know, he, he, he could worship the Lord in technicolour. It was amazing. This guy was just 
too good to be true. But when he also shared his, his life story, his weekends were actually filled with a lot of entertainment. I won't tell you what faculty he came from, but he, he uh, would go to nightclubs and virtually every second week he would come home with a different woman. He was a misogynist. But you see, he was a sophisticated misogynist. He knew in his heart, he but was trying to convince us that he believed that sin didn't matter. You see, he had this view that he'd been in, in the faith for long enough, he'd become sophisticated. And when you become sophisticated, you realise all the little hang-ups that you used to have about mere peccadilloes, like sexual morality or other sorts of morality, really don't matter a, a fig to God. That's his view. And if you challenged him, he would pull out that meanie word, that L word, and he'd accuse you of legalism. But that's not what John says. The one who really knows Jesus really says when someone commits sin willingly, they're not in fellowship with Christ. They walk in darkness. They're, they're stumbling. It's, it's a farce what they're doing. If only he realised, like we can realise in verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, two things happen. If we walk in the light, that means if our conduct is oriented towards God, pleasing God, being near God, if that matters to you, that's the fundamental of your life then you will tend to find that two things happen. You'll have fellowship horizontally. There'll be a freedom with your other brothers and sisters in the Lord. And you'll have fellowship vertically. The blood of Jesus, his son, will cleanse you and cleanse you and cleanse you. And you can rely on that daily, that his blood shed at that historical moment of Calvary is having an eternal effect and it's affecting you right now. And that's what you rest on. And when you experience guilt, you just pull closer and you bind yourself to that cross of Calvary. Like a tourniquet, you bind yourself around that because that is the basis of your fellowship with God. And the blood of Jesus will cleanse you from all sin. Now, that's one strategy, one defensive routine. But there's another sort that's equally insidious and doesn't work. And it's this, in verse 8 we read, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Here this person, unlike the first, they believe that sin does matter, really matters. It's just that they don't believe, and you notice it's not sins, it's sin singular, it is the principle of sin that doesn't bother them now. Sin is no hassle. Sin is not my problem, brother. This sort of person, the, the, the historians call perfectionists. They really believe that in your Christian life it's possible to end up on this plateau where you can look down at all the struggling plebs and sort of say, brother, where's your victory? That's just so sad. Oh, I don't stumble, I don't fall, I've reached that plateau. And... There's not a lot of that around today, but it will come back again and it can actually really wreck church fellowships and leaderships. I've seen it happen. 
the story is told of a famous Baptist evangelist that some might remember. He died about a decade ago now. He's a brilliant preacher and evangelist, one of the best. John Robinson was his name. He was a pastor at Dandenong Baptist at one time, but he, he travelled around. He even had his own radio program when I was a kiddie, and you could ring up on your birthday, and they'd send you something like a bookmark. <laughs> And, uh, you know, and uh, if you really felt special. And now he, he was a superb evangelist. And, and the story is told of one night down at Dandenong Baptist when there was a massive sort of youth rally thing and combined churches were there. And John Robbie, as he is affectionately known, put out an appeal and asked for people to come forward who wanted to do business with God and be cleansed and forgiven and walk with Christ. And uh, quite a number uh, of young adults at this rally came forward, um, conquered their embarrassment and came forward to be prayed for by people. And a mother of one of the children decided uh, to come early and and look at this spectacle, one of the the teenage folk that were there. And uh, she sidled up to John Robinson um, and decided to just have a little bit of fellowship with him And she came out with this little phrase and she said, "Um, isn't walking with Christ wonderful? And he said, well, yes, uh, it's wonderful. I wonder where this was heading. She says, I'll have you know, I haven't sinned in two years. (laughs) And Robbie, quick to the punch, said, I bet you're proud of that. And she said, I am. (laughs) But that's the nature of sin. Often people who think highly of themselves just aren't looking close enough. And I would have liked to have spent five minutes with her teenage kids to really find out what the story is. That's her cover story. It's not the reality. Amazing amazing spending your life projecting a fiction because there's no Christian who does not sin. Certainly John assumed that. So... We cannot say that the principle of sinning doesn't apply to us. It didn't apply to the Apostle Paul, if you read Romans chapter 7. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin, he says. It's a delusion. And it's sad because in verse 9 we read, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the astonishing thing. What does it mean to confess your sins? It means that when your conscience pangs, and that's a painful thing, that pang, when the Holy Spirit, as you're putting your head down on the pillow, reminds you that you told a porky today, or you were rather selfish, or your attitude to that person was preferential not impartial. And it comes back to you, at that time, what the Spirit is doing is saying, not that you're unsaved, or not that you're useless, but there's friction between you and me in our relationship. And I wish it wasn't there, but buddy, the ball's in your court. Pop. Pain. Confessing is simply agreeing with the Spirit. Confessing is not shedding tears or saying, oh, what a wretch I am. Confession is actually owning your own actions. I am responsible 
both for the good things I do, but also the dumb things I do. And that's what the Spirit is wanting, a little bit of honesty. That's what he's working at. Don't brush over those times. Don't skate over them, lest you become less and less sensitive to the voice of the Spirit. But if you only agree with God, you can depend right at that minute that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, not only to forgive, but to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You know, there are things that you have just been totally unaware of that, that are just perverse in your attitudes. We need a totally reconstruction. But that's not going to get between you and God. He cleanses you of all unrighteousness right then, even the things you can't remember. That's the wonderful truth of that verse. It's a profound verse. You must memorise that verse if you're to experience freedom from guilt in your Christian life. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And why does he do it? Because he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Did you notice those words? It did not say it's because he loves you. You aren't cleansed by God's love. Neither are you cleansed by your love for God. God is not in love with you. And you can try and make yourself in love with God, but it will not save you, it will not establish you, it will not cleanse you. Only a work of atonement at Calvary establishes you with God. It's his blood that cleanses you from sin. It was motivated by love. But love cannot save you. Only punishing sin can save you. Let that rest on you. Because the Holy Spirit, he wants you to really rest on that every time you sense distance with God. He doesn't want you to sing to him or to pretend or tell him how wonderful you... No, 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 just, just own the sin, son. That's what he wants. And then we can work on solutions, tendencies, that sort of thing. That's the work of God's spirit. It's not mentioned here, but that's what he is about. Then he comes to the third defensive routine. This is a different sort of person. This person, they're not saying that the principle doesn't apply to them, but when the Holy Spirit actually convicts them of sin, they say words to the effect of, sin is not my fault. It, it's a defensive routine. And they want to stand up and say, basically, God, you've got it wrong. You've come to the wrong address. There are mitigating circumstances which turn my actions from heinous sin, from perversity, into something neutral. If only you knew. <laughs> Who are we to tell God the basis of our motivation for our actions? It's a defensive routine. And you see what John says? This is the most serious of the strategies in terms of its detrimental impact on your spiritual life and fellowship with God. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Not only do we lie to our friends, not only do we project our superiority and their inferiority onto them, we tell God he is a liar. Can there be a more heinous statement 
but a statement by effect when we say, that's not my mail. It's come to the wrong address. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Isn't that a sad thing? When you play that game, you will find that God's, God's convicting word won't resonate in your consciousness. It won't come to you when he wants to speak to you. You'll be flying blind. It's not a way you want to fly or drive or live. And then John basically says, and you notice he breaks the pattern right at this point. He doesn't say, but if you only did X or only did C, then this D would happen. But he just basically says, my little children, because he's, he's relatively their father, and he's their father in the faith, I'm writing things to you, one, so that you may not sin. Okay, so sin matters. I'm not writing this to you so you might think it doesn't matter. I hope you never sin. But if anyone does sin, you see, you're going to sin. The principle still is operative in this world as long as you live in it. We have an advocate with the Father. You see, we actually have someone who is the barrister in the court of God standing up on your on your behalf, you don't need to get defensive. You don't need to construct a case. You don't need to mitigate your sin with God. We have an advocate with the Father, and who is he? He is none other than Jesus Christ, the righteous, the one from heaven, the one who came from heaven, the one who lived the perfect life, who has the perfect record. If God is going to listen to anyone, he won't be listening to you. He'll be listening to him. And so we've got to rely on that, that this is the best silk money can buy. And God gives us the son. Isn't that astonishing that every time I sin, this week I'm going to do it again. I'm going to blow it. I'm not going to tell you what my besetting sins are. But everything, every time I do, in a place which I cannot even conceive, there is an infinite being saying, don't touch him he's mine and he has already paid the price for his sin and I think when did I do that I did that at Calvary when I died or Jesus died my death that moment you see Jesus is not only righteous in verse 2 we finish with this critical word he is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but the sins of the whole world. It's an important word. It's good to learn those metaphors of salvation through the New Testament. You know, redemption, justification, sanctification, propitiation. This one is a forgotten one. It's because in, in, in the history of theology, it really caused a lot of problems, particularly amongst liberal theologians, who couldn't believe that a loving God could also be a wrathful God. They couldn't hold the tension to go together, so they threw out the wrath and they kept the love. A lot of theological colleges teach that garbage. But God is light. He will not compromise his principles. He will not compromise his holiness. He won't compromise it when he loves it. Years ago, um, when I was a young Christian, 
uh, when I was your age and getting really keen about the, the gospel and sharing it and wondering where God would, would take me next, the adventure had only begun. And I've had a mate down to Oakley Baptist and uh, he was the youth pastor there and was leading a small group and, and uh, really started to cut my teeth on, on ministry, not realising that you know, God was actually shaping me. But it was an interesting thing at this church. They had a particular ministry, which is curious. We called it the Ministry of the Aunties. And uh, I don't think we should start this up here. Um, but what would happen is that after a church service, I'd be hanging around as a um, young bachelor person and... Um, Oakley had a bit of a problem. They had a, um, a disproportionate number of um, eligible members of the female gender and, uh, and not many males. <laughs> and so what would happen after church service is if you got caught lingering around the uh, tea table or coffee table, um, uh, one of the aunties would come up and just say, you doing anything, Jeff? Why don't you come for dinner? Why don't you come for lunch? And unwittingly, uh, twice I did this, so I went to lunch with, one, with both of the aunties only to find that uh, you'd sit down at the meal table and opposite you would be, you know, eligible female number X29 <laughs> sitting there. And uh, I can remember the first one was a biochemist and uh, I remembered that because she had bifocals and I thought I'll remember it that way. And uh, another time it was a librarian and... Uh, Anyway, there was, I, I just don't believe in uh, you know, coerced romance. It just doesn't work for me. But, uh, and eventually this phrase would come up, um, you know, I'll just leave you two young people alone and uh, got to go and prepare lunch. And they'd disappear and shut the kitchen door and leave you for an inordinate amount of time discussing bacteria and petri dishes and, and things that really get me going. And... Um, and so after a while, I, I decided, um, you know, I had to do something. So after church services, I'd look for this particular family and uh, the, I'd played uh, footy with one of, one of the boys and they had three sons and a really, a really keen sporting family. And I'd go around there, I'd just mingle with them and hide from the aunties. And they'd invite me to lunch. Not only that, but they were the sort of family that uh, had no compunction about watching a footy match on Sunday afternoon. Neither did I. And uh, so it was all going swimmingly, but what would tend to happen is that every time I was there, the oldest son, who was a chip off the old block, would get into a blue with the father over the meal table. And it was always about, you know, was Collingwood the most dirty team ever, or did Jezelenko take the best mark ever, or... And they would differ violently over these very important issues. I couldn't believe it. And uh, at the height of these arguments, I thought they'd come to blows. The, the, the son would push back his chair and he'd walk out and he'd just push open the wire door and slam the back door and the father would get up and throw his serviette down. He'd walk down the hallway and into the bedroom and slam the bedroom door. And I'd be left... <laughs> I wonder if they'd mind if I could turn on the telly. And, just, uh, <laughs> and then I'd hear out... Down the back, I'd hear this click, click, click. And when I opened the door, I'd see right down the back of their block, the oldest son, with his jumper off, middle of winter, working up a sweat, chopping into this timber, block after block. And he would chop enough wood for you know, a whole army. He'd just get stuck into it. 
And I'd think, hmm, I don't know where I sit on the Collingwood Jezelenko issue. <laughs> but I'd, I'd come back and almost to the, the minute, every time, the son would walk in, open the back door, and it'd bang behind him, and the dad, I don't know what he was doing in the bedroom, but he'd come out of the bedroom, and uh, the dad or the son would say, Dad, um, like a cup of tea. And I'd go, what? They're just about to kill each other a minute. Like a cup oh no, I'll get it, son. You sit down. And I think, oh, it's nice that things have calmed down, but you know what had happened? The son, and I don't know what the dad did, but the son had found a creative option to deal with anger. And he decided instead of taking it out on the one he really loves and values, he'd take it out on an alternative object. And here's the rub, folks. The God you worship, the God you call Lord and Saviour, though it wasn't his perversity, though it wasn't his sin, he decided to become and put forward himself as the creative option, as the block of wood. You see, propitiation is not about wiping sin away. It's not about cleaning up your record. It is about dealing with God's anger, his wrath. Now, it's not the sort of wrath that you and I have. It's not thumos in the Greek. It's not flare-up explosive. It is orge. It is a settled hatred and a disposition that, like a heat-seeking missile, it will find its mark. That's the nature of the wrath of God. And the God who knows that he is light and must judge sin, who will not compromise his holiness, was willing to become the mere chopping block. So that Jeff Pugh, so that Lauren, so that you in this day and age would be able to stand up in front of him and own your sin. And be honest to God, fearlessly, because wrath expressed is wrath extinguished. He got it out of his system once and for all. He dealt with the whole cosmos of sin once for all. So there you have it, folks. There's the options. When the Holy Spirit comes a-calling and reminds you that he is not happy... You can either dance these sort of defensive dances. Oh, sin doesn't matter. Oh, I'm above sin. Oh, no, no, it's not my fault. You've got the wrong guy. Or you can say, Lord, thanks. I only stand by virtue of your willingness to be the propitiation for my sin. But thank God you are willing. You might say to me tonight, well, Jeff, (laughs) you know, you don't know my record. You don't know. I have things in my life which I remember. I have weaknesses which beset me. And if I told you, you wouldn't want to sit next to me at church. You wouldn't talk to me. Folks, you're exactly the person that Jesus wants to liberate by the application. You see, all the time, 
John takes us back again and again, again each time, that if you want to deal with sin, you've got to realize that you've got to rely on the cross. You don't just rely on the cross to come in the door of the church and then you get onto something else. You constantly rely on the blood of Jesus Christ. That's your only connection with a holy God, minute by minute. But it's sufficient. It will work. You can rely on that. How do we know that? Because the Jesus who went and became the propitiation went to the grave. And three days later, the Holy Spirit breathed into him the life and vindicated him as the righteous one. Isn't that an astonishing thing? This one is a walking demonstration of your security. Because of that, you can have confidence, regardless of your record that Jesus will accept you and cleanse you and make you his own. You cannot lose that. I'm going to suggest tonight something really bold. You know, our tendency due to COVID is to go out and talk. Do that. But I'm going to suggest that maybe if you've never trusted Jesus in that way that we've been talking about, that you linger a little longer and you come down here And Lauren and I will pray for you. This is so important. You have your future ahead of you and you're going to either live a lie, a fakery, or you're going to live in freedom. We want you to have the freedom that comes from trusting in Jesus. Our musicians are going to come and play. I'll just pray at this point. Our Lord and our God, we just thank you for a moment to engage you, to hear your beckoning call, to do business with you. And all of us sit here tonight, Lord, and all we just want to say, Lord, that simple word, thank you. Thank you for being who you are. Thank you that you do not compromise with sin, but thank you that you acted once and for all to deal with it. Thank you, Lord, that we can be called sons and daughters of the Most High God this hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.